0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Excellent. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're at chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 28 through 50. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series, talking about my one of my uh, favorite topics Other than intimacy with God, I love intimacy with God. I love the relationship we have with God through, by grace, through faith in Christ. But I love the glory of God. We're gonna talk about the glory of God because it's the intimacy of God that gives us the glory of God that satisfies us. Gives us such a deep satisfaction in our lives. Also grab your sermon notes out. We're gonna walk through this here. And uh, so, we talked about this last weekend. We believe that full devotion to Christ, you guys remember that from last weekend? We believe that full devotion to Christ and fullness of life are one in the same pursuit. Are one in the same pursuit. You guys with me? Okay, you guys with me here this morning? Okay, okay. Just want to make sure. How about you guys over here? You guys over here? You guys hanging in there? You guys taking a beating from the heat here? You guys just... You guys... This is the later crowd. You guys should be more awake, okay? You guys should be more like, "Yeah, bring on the day." I slept until 10, or whatever, whatever you slept into. Did you, you guys typically sleep in? Anybody here? Okay, then you should be refreshed, okay? And I'm expecting some like, "Woo, bring it on, Pastor Ray," okay? So, so we believe that full devotion to Christ, living for God's glory and fullness of life, our satisfaction are one and the same pursuits. See, you and I, we were created by God for God to give glory to God, and in fact, God's glory is best displayed. How is God's glory best displayed? So, so track with me here. If, if you were created to put on display God's glory, how is it best displayed in your life? It's best displayed by you finding your deepest satisfaction in Him. That's how it's best displayed. And, and by the way, you know this that nothing on this planet will satisfy you like the Creator, knowing Him, walking with him, enjoying him, experiencing him in your life that 's why I said intimacy with God is my favorite topic. The glory of God is right up there with it because it 's in the intimacy with God that we experience his glory it 's His glory that brings us satisfaction it 's the best way to put on display his glory is our satisfaction. In him. And so here's the question, so what does that look like? What, what is experiencing God's glory? What does that mean to experience his glory? And why do we need it and how do we get it? That's where we're headed this morning. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's pray for God's help on this study. God, we are delighted to be here today. Nothing will free us, nothing will fulfill us, nothing will make us more fruitful, more productive than to live our lives for your glory. Yet in the busyness of life, we we not only lose sight of your presence, but also your glory, making life about us rather than your plan, your kingdom, and your glory. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would show us your glory. Show us your glory, we ask. Teach us what it means to experience your glory and why we need it and how we can experience it. We pray in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. Let me read through it. I'll make some very brief comments as we work through it. It's almost hard for me to read without things popping off the page to me and me wanting to talk about them. So I'll do my best because I think there are some things that might be helpful. But uh, chapter nine, starting at verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. There's that word, glory, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That's another key word there, uh, if you've got in the ESV, you'll see the footnote actually says he was speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, so this is the exodus of all exoduses, you know, so to speak, that he's talking about. And he's talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. And the freedom that that would bring to us, that through that, he would set us free from sin and death and Satan. And, and that's what he's talking about here with Elijah and Moses. And uh, verse 32, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. (laughs) Okay, you guys are awake. (laughs) Oftentimes, this is our problem and why we don't see the glory of God. We don't experience what God has for us because we're heavy with sleep. We, We come to church and we just kind of check the church box and go through the motions. And when is this going to be over? And... These guys are totally missing it. They're heavy with sleep. I make sure that there's nobody here heavy with sleep. <laughs> I'll come out there after you if you're asleep. Don't dare fall asleep here. Okay. So they're heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his what's the word there? Glory. His glory. There's the word again. When they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus... Now, keep in mind, Peter's the the dude that tends to put his foot in his mouth regularly throughout the Gospels. Anybody relate to Peter? You ever say things sometimes, you go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I do that. Yeah, I'm right there with him. That's why I like Peter. He's just really a great guy. So, he's going to say some things. The first thing that he says, I think, is right on. But it's the second thing that he says that's a little bit goofy. Okay? But so, so here's Peter. So, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. So that was, that's a good thing because he's like, oh my goodness, there's nothing sweeter than this. I've never been more satisfied. Oh my goodness, this is a wonderful place. That's what he's saying there. But then he says, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I mean, he was almost kind of like he's, he's out of his mind a little bit. That's a little bit of what the, the Greek understanding. And then when you compare this to the other accounts found in Matthew and Mark, it, it's just like he didn't know what to say, so he, he said this. And, and it's just like, that's not the right thing to say. Why did he say that? That's dumb. And and it is, because notice what happens. And most of the commentators would say, notice what happens next. As he was saying these things, almost if God were to say, hey, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen here. Here's what's going to happen. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, or my beloved one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So they had this mountaintop experience, and they couldn't even describe it. It was indescribable. It gave them an indescribable joy, but it also gave them really an indestructible joy. There was nothing that could ever take this experience away from them. This encounter that they had with, with Jesus. And they don't talk much about it until we've got, got it written down here, obviously, but these are eyewitnesses of, of what these guys experienced here. Now, and we go on to the next story here, and notice this uh, in verse 37. And on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, now, let's, let's just talk just for a minute, you've had those experiences when you've gone up on a retreat or you've gotten away for a few days and you've had those mountaintop experiences. Anybody? Show of hands. Those mountaintop experiences where God's glory, God's goodness is so real to you. And then you've got to come down off of the mountain. Bummer. Because what do they do? They immediately have conflict and they have uh, issues and they've got turmoil in their life. But it's those mountaintop experiences that prepare us for the struggle The difficulties down down below the mountain. And so that's what they're going to face here. Notice this. And a great crowd met him. So they come down from the mountain. A great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher! Teacher! I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So he, he asked the disciples. They couldn't get it done, which is interesting here. This is a, one of those, uh, this is that story um, Mark talks a little bit more about this. This is the guy that asked Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. And Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. And, and you guys remember how this guy responded? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Guess familiar with what I'm talking about there? This is the same guy. Now Luke doesn't talk about that. Luke, uh, Mark gives us a little bit more detail, but he's, he's struggling here. Notice how Jesus responds to his disciples who are kind of fumbling around here. Uh, trying to cast out this demon. And Jesus answered and said, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you, you knuckleheads? <laughs> That's somewhere in the Greek there, uh, the original text. Okay, probably not. But, but he says. Uh, then he says, bring your son here so Jesus has, you, you can see a little sense of frustration. He goes, guys, what are you doing? And in fact, Mark talks about when they ask Jesus later, Luke doesn't talk about this, but when they ask Jesus later, why couldn't we get this done? It's because you guys aren't connected with the Father. You, you guys aren't praying. He says, this only comes out by prayer, and then some translations say, would, would say fasting. So he says, you guys, you guys think you can pull this off on your own? You can't face the difficulties of life on your own. You need, you need God. And you're not trusting in him to give you what you need to be able to face those issues. That's, that's really what, what he's saying here. It says, while he was coming, check this out. Oh, I like this. So while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Did you notice this? That every time Jesus shows up, demons freak, okay? I love that. That's cool. So what that means is that if you've got Jesus in you by grace through faith in Christ, you've, he, his Holy Spirit comes to live within you, when you show up, Demons freak. I love it. So if I walk up and you get agitated, <laughs> what's that tell you? Okay, maybe I took that analogy just a bit too far. But, uh, but what's fascinating about that, so if you have Christ in you, there's no darkness, there's no hell. There's no demon that can get the best of you because you have the the power of the Son of God in your life. So, I mean, so Jesus shows up. He's going to go get rid of that demon. What does the demon do? They all freak out. They freak out. So while he's coming, the demon threw himself to the ground, convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Yes, that's a good response. It's like, ah, oh, wow, this is awesome. I love it. Now, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man, speaking of himself, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What is he talking about there? As he's heading towards Jerusalem, he's just saying, hey, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to be crucified. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, what would you think that the disciples are discussing and working through at this point? I mean, because he's, you know, three of them experienced the glory of God. They're seeing the majesty of God through Jesus. And so you think, wow, they're really impressed and What are they doing here? Well, look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Oh, my goodness. you got to be kidding me. These guys are knuckleheads. They're just like us. They're just like us. we got the majesty and the glory of God all around us, and we kind of, what do we do? We get into these little, I'm better than you. That's what they're doing here. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now, what Jesus over and over again shows us, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Become like a child. Not not childishness, but childlikeness, which is humility and total dependency upon God. And that makes you great in the kingdom of God. And that's what he's bringing out here so he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. And then in verse 49, John answered... Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning and so we got some work to do so here's the first question what is experiencing God's glory and you'll notice in verse 28 we started our reading by by this he says now about eight days after these sayings now very rarely does Luke uh, walk through this chronologically and tie the stories together so anytime he does you got to take note Unlike Matthew and Mark, they, would, they tend to tie their stories together, kind of does it in a kind of chronological order. But Luke does it, and so he's saying, now after eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up onto the mountain to pray. So after these sayings, what are those things? So we've got to go back and talk about that just for a minute. What came right before uh, was what, uh, is what Peter and the disciples had come to realize. So what had become, what we studied last weekend, being fully devoted to Christ, is that they begin to realize that Jesus was not just a great man touched by God, but that he was the Messiah. In fact, if you go back to those verses, you will see Peter's famous confession. Peter says, you you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah from God. It's a pretty profound statement. They have arrived at right beliefs. But not until this incident that those beliefs are real to them. Okay. Now listen to me. You've got to understand this. So we need to have good theology. We need to have healthy theology. But our theology needs to lead to doxology. Doxology means worship. We need to experience our theology. So theology plus doxology equals Life liberating, soul satisfying psychology. Wholeness. That's what brings the transformation to our lives. Now, if you have theology, all your ducks in a row, you know what the Bible teaches about God and about man and about sin and about salvation and all those things. You got all your ducks in a row, but you don't have doxology, so you got theology minus doxology equals what? Anybody? Dead orthodoxy, religion, you're just checking the box. You're just going through the motions. What if you have doxology minus theology? In other words, you have, you have an experience, you come to church and you get an experience, but it's not based on good, healthy theology. It's called emotionalism, it's also called idolatry. Your God that you are worshiping, if it is in God, you, maybe you might even be worshiping the experience. It's not gonna be really life-changing. So now listen to me, you got to get this, you got to understand this. So you've got to have good, healthy theology, but you need to experience your theology. And so you need to have doxology that's going to bring wholeness. That's what transforms us. So you got to have that balance here. Now let's answer the question here, what is experiencing God's glory? And this is what it is. It is his supreme significance and breathtaking beauty made real to your heart. So it is his supreme significance and breathtaking beauty. That's theology made real to your heart. That's doxology that brings about healthy, whole psychology. That's, that's all part of that. Now... The transfiguration, this transfiguration, this story is a recapitulation of the Old Testament events in Exodus of Moses and the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. You guys are probably familiar with this, the lightning and the clouds and the voice of God and the glory of God. And in fact, you need to change uh, one of the addresses there. Exodus, it's Exodus 33, 18. It's on your notes there. Exodus 33, 18, where, where, remember Moses led them out of Egyptian bondage? And where are they headed out of Egyptian bondage? They're headed to the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Milk meaning the land of strength, honey meaning the land of satisfaction. It's an Old Testament picture of the New Testament person of Christ and what we find in him. But they're headed there to the promised land. And so they have this uh, this event, this encounter with God on Mount Sinai. And so Moses said, show us your glory. It's a phenomenal story there in the 33rd chapter of Exodus. And what he's saying here, it's, I mean, I absolutely love this. He's saying is that, God, listen, listen, you gotta understand this. We would rather, we would rather wander around in the wilderness with your glory and your presence rather than to go into the promised land without your glory and presence. That's what he's saying. That's how big, that's how important uh, God's glory was to them, and it should be to us. To give me the worst days of my life, it doesn't matter. As long as I have you, God, I can face anything. That's That's basically what he's saying. All the best things that life has to offer are nothing compared to knowing you and experiencing you. That's what he's saying. That's big. So he uses this word glory, show me your glory, and the Hebrew word for this is kabod, and it means God's weight, significance, importance, and matter. Because basically he says, how will people be able to distinguish us from others that don't know you unless we have your glory, unless we have your presence? It's that's where I got that idea of supreme significance. So it is his supreme significance. But the word that's used here in the New Testament, glory, I'm giving you the kind of the definition. So the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament is in Greek. And so, verses 31 and 32, the word glory, twice in our text, the Greek, is, uh, Greek word is doxa, doxa, where we get our word doxology, which means praise, wonder, and beauty. And so, it is his supreme significance, that's the Old Testament word glory, kabod, so it is his supreme significance and breathtaking beauty, doxa, doxology, made real to your heart. Made real to your heart, Well, what what does that mean? Yes, they knew he was the son of God, but do you notice when they sit down to pray, what happens? They fall asleep, kind of like some of you when you sit down and pray. When you sit down and pray. Anybody have that problem from time to time? Let's, okay, let's fess up, let's, come on, come on. You're in church. There's no lightning going to strike you. It's all by God's grace. But how many would say, hey, man, when I sit down to pray, my mind goes a hundred different places. And then sometimes I even find myself falling asleep. Okay. And sometimes it's the best sleep I ever get. Okay. okay um, so that's, that's what they're doing. That's what they do. I mean, they they fall asleep. And the reason they, they fall asleep is that even though they know he's the son of God, his greatness is not real to them. But when they become fully awake, they saw his glory. They become fully awake, they see his glory. They're captivated. The presence of God envelops them and they get a foretaste of what all of us are longing for. What are we longing for? The very face and embrace of God. Oh my goodness, that's good stuff. I love it. This is what you long for, whether you realize it or not. If you look deep enough in your heart, the, the inconsolable human longing in all of us, is evidence that we were created to enjoy the riches of God's glory. I mean, I love living in in America. Good old God bless America. And there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of pleasures, a lot of things we enjoy here that a lot of other countries don't. And yet, none of those things that we enjoy can come close to what we have in God and what we have in Him and, and, and we need to always, always keep that in mind. It's just, it's, there's nothing quite like it. So, so let me make this practical. So th- what does that look like in my life? What does that look like in my everyday life? Well, you may say, hey, I know that God has forgiven me, but I, I'm still eaten up with guilt and shame over my past sin. So if you're saying that, it's because you know it intellectually, but not experientially. You have good theology, yeah, 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 God forgives us, no doubt. But you're not experiencing it. It's not real to your heart. You got good theology, but it's not doxology. It's not going to transform your life. Or you may say, I know that God is loving, wise, and in control, but I'm anxious and worried and stressed over my, my kids or my circumstances or this job. Oh, What am I going to do? Well, it's because his love, wisdom, and power is clear. It's clear to your mind, but it's not real to your heart. You got the theology, you don't have the doxology. Or you may say, I know Christ died in my place for my sins, but I'm not living a very adventuresome life, generously giving of my time and my talent, my treasure for him. Well, it's because his sacrificial love for you is a, a concept not a reality to your heart. You see, your your sin, these three illustrations I gave you, your sin, your circumstances, your your comfort carries more weight, more significance, more importance, more glory than your savior does. You kind of begin to see why we need to experience his glory. That's what transforms us. See, the difference between a religious person and a Christian a Christian is somebody to whom the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done for us is becoming more and more real, more and more real to our hearts, more to us, and greater than any sins, circumstances, or need for, for, comfort. Let me give you. An, I found there's a lot of different illustrations here. I found this illustration, quite helpful. Uh, the acclaimed movie, The Shawshank Redemption. You guys familiar with the movie? And that's, a, that's a wild movie, interesting movie. But there's a scene in that movie. Um, the acclaimed movie, The Shawshank Redemption, tells the story of an institutional life in a gritty penitentiary. And one day, a prisoner defies the prison warden and plays an opera song over the prison's loudspeaker. You guys remember this scene in the movie? And the main character, Red Redding, who's Red Redding? Morgan Freeman you knew it. Okay, okay. And I can't, I can't say it in his words because he does really a great job as he's kind of narrating the movie and kind of goes through that. But he narrates over the scene how that song transforms Shawshank as it echoes throughout the prison. And this is what he says, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. I tell you, those voices soared higher and further than anybody in a gray place dares to dream. It was like some beautiful bird flapped into our drab little cage and made these walls dissolve away. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. You guys remember the scene? All the guys walking out in kind of the courtyard? What were they doing? They were stunned and they just stopped and they were like listening to this beautiful music. It's like, whoa. Okay, that's it, Ray. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they were just, they were captivated. They were captivated. Almost kind of like, uh, and I'm sharing that only because if that's true with something in creation, like, like a newborn baby. When you look at a newborn baby, don't you, aren't you just like, oh, wow. Or, or a sunset, beautiful sunset. As you look at the colors and you're stunned by that. Or, or a hot fudge Sunday. Yes. <laughs> you're just like, oh, I'm going to dive into that. Oh, yummy. I mean, whatever it might be. But if that's true in creation, and you've had those moments, you've had even those mountaintop experiences, and if that's true... In creation, How much more is that true with the creator? Now, here's the question. How does does God reveal his glory to us? What are the different ways? God's glory is revealed through creation, through creation, general revelation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. So we hear it every day, every day. Every day we hear, hear his voice. We can we can see this in general revelation. It is nonverbal communication that there is a God, that the world is not an accident, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands. We can see that. I mean, I mean, if you think, if you just pause long enough and begin to look around. And sometimes we don't do that until we go on vacation. Sometimes we even don't even do that on vacation, okay? We don't slow down enough. And you look at the order, the design, the symmetry, the intricacy, the coordination. Before long, if you're actually a rational person, you're gonna be, begin to think, wait a minute, it takes more faith, it takes more faith to believe that this all came about through random chance and unlimited time than it does to believe in divine, intelligent design. Because why? God is revealing his glory to us through creation. And then you've got covenant, that's the next word, covenant. So not just creation, but also, this is the Bible, special revelation. All scripture is God breathes. It's, it's the breath of God. It is verbal communication that there is a God. He has spoken to us. How do we know there is a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. How has he done that? Through creation, oh, and through covenant, through a Bible, he wrote it down. He speaks to us through his word. We study it week in and week out here at Desert Breeze. His word reveals his glory, and his glory confirms that it's his word. And believe me, I'm telling you, that I haven't had to hold on to God's word. His word has held on to me for many, many years as I have studied it, as I have, as I have gotten glimpses of God's glory. As I was studying this story, I began to see God's glory in ways that just sent me to the moon and back. Absolutely stunning how God reveals himself to us through his word. So you got creation, you got his word, but ultimately... Why is it so stunning when we study his word? Because his word is all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. That's ultimate revelation. So creation is general, general revelation. The covenant is a special revelation, God's word, the Bible. The Bible, yes, and then Christ, ultimate revelation. Now, you need to understand this, and this is what's fascinating between what's happening here compared to Exodus 33. So in Exodus 33, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face reflected the glory of God that eventually faded. By the way... He couldn't see the face of God because he would have been fried, okay? He would have died, he said, no one can see me and live. And so all that Moses gets is to get, he gets to see the backside of God. And yet, it is so magnificent, he walks off that mountain and his face is glowing, but then it eventually fades. But in this story, Jesus is the source of the glory of God. His whole body doesn't reflect, but it emanates God's glory. Moses was like the moon because the moon shines with reflected light. But this passage is telling us Jesus is the sun. He is the ultimate way to understand who God is. Nothing surpasses. He is the perfect representation of who God is. And that's what we see in this story. Let me give you a couple of really great verses here that help us to understand this. They're on your notes Uh, the addresses. Hebrews 1, 3, it says, He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You think that verse is good? Wait till you hear this one. I mean, this is even, I mean, this is right up there with some of the great verses. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is that? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. Ultimate revelation. So so how do we know there's a God? Because he reveals himself to us. How does he do that? Through creation, covenant, through his word, he wrote it down. Oh, by the way, he showed up here through Jesus Christ. So when we study God's word, we get glimpses of Jesus. In essence, we're looking into the very face of God. We have an experience of of God's glory in all of that. Now, why we desperately need it. This is so critical that you get this. Uh, I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna reveal to you why we have the struggle that we have in our relationships. Would you say that there's a lot of relational conflict in, in people's lives around you, in, in in America. I mean, look at the two parties warring back and forth, the Democrats and the Republicans, and if you can even toler, tolerate even a little bit of the news, oh my goodness, after a while I have to turn it off. It's just so... so uh, so much conflict, it seems so destructive. Well, what's the root of that? What's the root of marital conflict? What's the root of parental conflict? What's the root of conflict with, with our neighbors and friends and, and with one country against another? I'm gonna tell you that right here. It's right here in this text. If you can understand this, you can, you, you'd become more of an expert in conflict resolution because why we desperately need the glory without God's glory we struggle with and there's three things that we struggle with here I'm gonna get to that in a minute but there's some things that there's a couple verses here that I put as cross references and there's a a word that you need to have defined for you and uh, this one word is found in Philippians 2.3 and Galatians 5.22 let me read to you Philippians 2.3 it says do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit that's the word conceit Conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Here's that same word again. He says in Galatians 5.26, let us not become conceited. So what is conceit? What does it mean to be conceited? And then he says, when we're conceited, we're provoking one another and envying one another. So you can see the conflict there in that. So what is conceit? I didn't put it on your notes, but you can write it somewhere there. This is the definition of conceit. When it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, let us not become conceited. The word conceit, I actually prefer more of the King James Version. It actually says, it uses the word vainglory. Vainglory. So what is vainglory? The Greek here means empty of glory. So when we have conceit, We become empty of glory. It means that you sense, it means you sense an inner emptiness and you are desperate to fill it with recognition and affirmation. That's what that means. That you are desperate to prove yourself. It's a natural human heart condition. Okay. Some of you woke up right then, okay. Actually, you looked up, but you didn't wake up. But okay, now listen to me. This is... This is really important for you to understand this. You were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day and to look into the face of your creator and to have him give you all of the acceptance and affirmation and significance and security that you would ever need. But because we thought we were smarter than God and we believed the lie that we would find goodness outside of God, we took a different route. And immediately, listen to me, what that does is it created this spiritual alienation and it leaves us empty on the inside because our fullness, remember, vain glory, empty of glory, leaves us empty of glory. And then that creates this psychological alienation inside of us. And we, we become desperate for recognition and affirmation. And if I'm desperate for recognition and affirmation, and then we begin to cultivate relationship, it's going to create sociological alienation. It's going to create relational conflict. You can see that. I wrote it down there for you on your notes. And, and that's why it says, what, what I found interesting here in Galatians let us not become conceited, so, so we become conceited because we're empty of glory, but we become empty of glory because we're not going to God to get what we should be getting. We start looking in creation, creates all this turmoil within us, It creates all this conflict, and then, of course, I'm going to have this sociological conflict going on. In fact, I'm, going to, I'm not going to tell you, but, but I'm, going to, I'm going to use you to, to get what I desperately need. And if, and, if, and if I can't get it from you, I'm going to find it from somebody else. That's why people go from relationship to relationship, from one job to the next job, from from one toy to the other toy, thinking that somehow they're going to satisfy that inside of them. That's why it says here, let us not become conceited, provoking one another. Provoking one another is a superiority complex. I'm better than you. And then envying one another is an inferiority complex. You think you're better than me or you are better than me and I hate that. So he's really showing us the dynamics of how our relationships work and how desperate we are. Now, this is what you need to keep in mind. If you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own through Christ, all of your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself. The only thing that you can bring to that relationship, if, you're not, if you don't find a completeness in Christ, you're gonna be empty of glory, and you're gonna to try to get it in that relationship, and you're gonna wreck that relationship. We do that. That's, all, that's the root of all of our conflict, all of our problems on this planet are. If you could take that, begin to meditate on it, and then begin to look at your life, why you would have relational conflict with people and begin to deal with it according to that and realize that, it's going to make a difference in how you respond. If you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity, on your own, in Christ Jesus, looking into his eyes, knowing what he, he knows and cares about you and, and, and having that And then as you go out into relationships, it it makes a major difference. So if I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on my own, all my relationships become an effort to complete myself. And this is what happens. Fill in the blanks here. Unbelief. So if I'm not going to God regularly, looking to him, I'm gonna have unbelief. It's gonna create worry, self-pity, bitterness. Did you notice in verses 37 through 43, the disciples are fumbling around and he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And, And I said that... The Gospel of Mark goes into more detail, and he says, the disciples come to him and say, well, why couldn't we do it? It's because you guys aren't praying. You're disconnected from the Father. That's why you have unbelief, and it creates worry. It creates self-pity. It creates bitterness, and that's gonna lead to conceit, which is vainglory, pride, self-centeredness. Verses 46 through 48, the disciples are arguing over who's the greatest. I mean, It's a perfect story to, to demonstrate that. And then rivalry, selfish ambition and competition. That's the third word. Look at verses 49 through 50. Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. I mean, that's rivalry. My team's better than your team. We, we're gloating over how good our team is and how great we are and all that. Why do we do that? because we're empty of glory. We're running in a deficit rather than if we have the abundance of God, we're gonna gonna relate to people differently. We're gonna deal with conflict differently. If If the love of God was real to you, if the love of God was real to you, If his love, if you begin to realize, and you got a glimpse of the fact that this creator, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth loves you, he adores you, he gave his life for you, you would never worry. You wouldn't struggle with self-pity. You wouldn't have bitterness, like you're getting a bum deal. You got him. You've got him. I mean, but, but see, we're sinners. We sin. We're desperate for his grace. Show me your glory. That's why he's saying that. That's why uh, Exodus, Moses saying, oh, my goodness, we're shot if we don't see your glory. I got to see your glory. I, that's what I pray daily. I pray that for all of us here regularly here week, on weekend services. Oh, God, show us your glory. We need to see you. We need to experience you. I mean, it would, it would make all the difference in our life to, to know his love for us. You would, be, you would not be desperate for recognition and affirmation, and therefore you wouldn't fear rejection and, and be upset with criticism. And, and by the way, when you're empty like that, you're a manipulator. You're a controller. That's where controlling and manipulation comes in, or coercion. By the way, if you've got a leadership, if you're going to a church where the leadership that they're looking to the people and looking to the, the numbers and, and finances and all these things, you know, to, to build up and to boost their, the glory that they so desperately need and they're not getting it from God, they're going to be coercive. They're going to be manipulative. And then I are not going to tell you that. And, and you might not even catch it. But underneath why they're doing what they're doing, that underlying motive so, not only as, as leaders here at this church do we need to be filled up with his glory, but we need to help you guys to be filled up with his glory and to know that. And I'll, and I'll tell you that if, if you do, if, if, if the love of God was real to you, you would be a very contented, compassionate, and courageous person regardless of, of the circumstances. But, but it, what that does is it reveals our sinfulness and how desperate. We are for his grace and thank you God for your grace that you rescued me day in and day out as I keep coming to you and resting in you. So how, how can we experience that? How do we do this? Here we go. The first point on here is the most important and everything else is built off, off of this. And so you gotta get this. So how, how can we experience it? Number one, live by grace through faith in Christ. Now, the verses that we used here, remember in verses 44 through 45, Jesus is talking about his death. Now, in, in verse 34, in our text, the glory cloud overshadowed them, and they were afraid. Did you notice that in this story? They, when the glory cloud came down over them, they were frightened. Why? His light, the holiness, exposes our sinfulness. And this is an amazing passage. The glory cloud comes around them, and they live they live. They're not struck dead. And that's what's, that's what's crazy about this story. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he said, show me your glory, the Lord s- said to him, no one can see my face and live. Exodus thirty-three twenty. 20. But here they saw his glory, they saw his face, and they lived. What does that mean? What does that mean that they actually saw his glory? This The transfiguration is teaching us that Jesus is not only the God on the other side of the chasm, he is the bridge across the chasm. He's also the bridge across the chasm. This is telling us that Christianity is different. People, when they ask, well, what's the difference between Christianity? Aren't all religions the same? No, you obviously haven't really studied it out because Christianity, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion will teach you how to build a bridge across the chasm. Christianity says... The bridge is built across the chasm through Jesus Christ. That's what this story is telling us, that that Jesus is not only the God on the other side of the chasm, he's the God who built the bridge across the chasm. Remember when he died on the cross, there was something that happened in the temple, in this place called the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, the curtain that kept everyone out was what? It was ripped from top to bottom, almost to say, now we have access into the very throne room of God. Oh, my goodness, for all who put their faith in Jesus by grace through faith in Christ. And believe me, when you hang out in the throne room of the holy king of the universe, who is your father, who happens to be your father, your daddy, you're not easily dominated by mere humans just like you, okay? It changes you. It changes you and how you respond to the circumstances of life. And, and that's what they experienced. There's another word here. Remember I, I mentioned verse 31, departure. The Greek word is exodus. That's ironic. Here's Moses talking to Jesus about the exodus. Remember Moses helped the people with their exodus from Egyptian bondage, Old Testament picture, New Testament person Christ what exodus? What is Jesus helping us with what exodus? Well, the answer is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate exodus. Moses only liberated the people from economic and social oppression, but Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is is actually what he did on the cross is that he liberated us from sin and death itself. So, he's not just the God on the other side of the chasm. He is the bridge across the chasm. I mean, if you could hear that we have access to the throne room of God. You need to go into the throne room of God every day. You need to practice His presence. You have it available to you through Christ. Now, how do we do that? Let me give you the next thing. So, you need to pray. Number two, pray that the truth, of your, the truth in your head becomes real to your heart. Did you notice in verses 28 through 29? As they were praying, the glory came down. So, if you're not praying, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not coming to church regularly, yeah, you might get glimpses of God through creation and through other ways. You're not going to experience it. So how are you doing with your spiritual disciplines? Are you doing those things that would give you opportunity to really connect with God? I, I, we, uh, we, we kicked off this intimacy with God class this last, uh, this last Wednesday night. And so we were only going to keep it to like 40 people. And we didn't know how many were going to sign up, so we had 40 people uh, sign up, and we cut the class, and we cut it off, and said, oh, no more sign up. But so many of you insisted to be a part of that class, and you said you're going to leave the church if you couldn't be a part of the class. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, okay, then, we're going to open up the class. No, you didn't say that. But many of you insisted, so we went ahead and opened it up, and 165 people signed up for the class, and 180 people showed up last Wednesday, Isn't that crazy? You know what that tells me about DBers like you guys? You just love God and you wanna grow in your intimacy with God. And you want your your theology to become doxology. You want to experience your theology. That's amazing. Oh, by the way, if you can't make it to the class, you can still come out to the class, but uh, you can go online. We're we're posting all of the, the messages and the notes are on there too, so feel free to do that. But, but this is what I pray. And, and you've got to develop uh, kind of the skills and the disciplines to do this. In Ephesians 1:16 through 19, he says, pray that God will open the eyes of our heart, really is what he's saying. He's praying, he's praying that for believers. So do you pray regularly that God will open the eyes of your heart to see his glory? It also tells us in 2 Corinthians 3:18 that beholding the glory of the Lord, we become whole. So let me ask you this. When do you take out enough time to just sit and gaze at the beauty of the Lord, and to behold His glory. If you're like me, ADD, Mr. ADD here, it's hard, it's crazy hard. But I'll tell you what, when I do it, it changes me, it transforms me, and I get those glimpses, and I, there's, a, there's a soul satisfaction, there. there's a liberation, and I begin to respond, and I begin to see life differently, because I'm seeing His greatness and His, His beauty, his supreme significance and his breathtaking beauty. And then I go, you know what? Why am I so stressed out? I don't need to stress out. I'll be okay. I just rest in him. See, beholding, it is, it is not a glimpse. It's not a glimpse, but a steady, sustained, focus. It is praising, admiring, and enjoying God in and of himself, not for what he... What you can get from him, but just to be with him. It's it's a Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I am God. Okay, number, number three: cultivate community that stirs your appetite for God. Verse 28, he took with him his small group: Peter, James, and John. Okay? So you need to be a part of a small group. Are you part of a small group? You have a group of people that are helping to, it tells us in Hebrews 10, 23 and 25, neglect not the assembling of yourselves together. And in that context, see how you can begin to stir up each other's hearts for love and good deeds. And so you need somebody ahead of you, you need somebody behind you, you need somebody pretty different from you, you need somebody of a different race, a different culture, maybe even a different political party that loves Jesus as much as you love Jesus. See, there's a dynamic of God's presence and glory that you will experience in community that you cannot experience alone. So, you need people in your life that stir that up within you. You will never know Jesus Christ deeply unless you deeply know other people who have had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Every one of your friends who knows Jesus Christ will actually see a part of Jesus that you don't. And you also represent something they don't see. Number four, rest in your family status verse 35 this is my beloved son this is the very same words spoken to Jesus at his baptism in Luke 3:22 so what we can say about this so by grace through faith in Christ we are in Christ which means that his righteousness is attributed to our account and what is true of Christ is true of us so according to Romans 8:15 through 16 these are the same words that you should have ringing in your soul because of what Christ has done on the cross what are those words you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Those are the words you should hear ringing in your soul. And you need to spend time beholding him until you're beginning to hear those words so vivid and so strong in your heart. And then submit to his authority, verse 35. This is my son, listen to him, John fifteen ten says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, we don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing, therefore we obey him. We have his blessing through Jesus Christ, therefore we obey him. And then make every pleasure a channel of adoration. Verse 33 says, master, it is good that we are here. I love that. Man, this is a good place. 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So, so the next time you have a Culver's turtle, you guys know what a Culver's turtle is? It's fresh, frozen, creamy vanilla custard bathed in caramel and chocolate with toasted pecan pieces. Wait a minute, I've just taken off into another world. The next time you have a, a, a frozen, a culver's turtle let your pleasure be a channel of adoration to God Mm. and that's with everything in life Mm. can I have more yes praise God let's pray let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning so Father God we now celebrate through communion the apex of of your glory, the apex of your glory revealed to us through the slaughter of your son in our place for our sins on the cross to redeem and reconcile us to you. We are amazed that the same glory that would have been fatal to Moses on contact now comes into the hearts of those pardoned by Christ, giving us all the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need May the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for us not only be clear to our minds, but also real to our hearts as we, as we cultivate community that stirs our appetite for him, resting in our family status because of him, submitting to his authority and making every pleasure in life a channel of adoration to him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.